If you've been here most of this year, you know what our theme is. We're talking attempting to live by the book this year. The Thessalonian church is kind of our model. They uh, received the word of God and they accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God. If that's what this book is, then it's the infallible guide for our life. Just to remind you where we've been this year, let's uh, kind of remember that we looked at Psalms 19 first. We spent quite a bit of time in that uh, chapter, uh, and David talked about the law of the Lord. And he called it all different things, but he said this book that we're talking about is complete. He said it transforms, it's reliable, it makes you wise, it's the right path. It gives us joy, it it enlightens, it helps us to see clearly, it is without fault, it's it's relevant throughout time, it's true and entirely good. That is the book we're talking about. That's the book that we're endeavoring to live by this year. And we've looked at a number of different things. Our first series we called Living Eternally by the book, and we talked about our future life, how we uh, we'll live in heaven, and the only way to do that is by the book. Uh, then we spent four weeks talking about living confidently by the book. While we're on this earth, uh, how do we live? We live confidently in Christ. It took us a little longer. It took us ten weeks to uh, cover kingdom living by the book. We went through the Sermon on the Mount and didn't get near all of it, but we got quite a bit of it, and saw how the king described how we ought to live in the kingdom by the book. So uh, I mention all those things and to help you remember where we've been. And if you weren't here for some of those, you can get the uh, CDs and uh, recordings of those and get caught up in the library. Uh, <clears throat> but that's where we've been. Now today we start a new series. And I'm calling it Home Restoration by the Book. Uh, we try to talk about the home pretty regularly, uh, not every year, but we cover it almost every year, a series on the home and uh, how we live in the home. Uh, we've looked at the Christian home a lot of different ways. Uh, this one's going to be similar, I guess, because it's all from the same book, uh, but I think it's going to be a little more serious, perhaps, I hope it is. Uh, it's going to be straight Bible, like all of our lessons on the home are, but I hope this one's a little more practical. In fact, I hope it's practical beyond what you can imagine. Uh, in fact, it's going to be countercultural. Uh, it's going to be so countercultural that some of you aren't going to like it a bit. Uh, but we're going to look at the book and what it says about the home and uh, our homes need to be restored. Today, we're going to set the direction uh, by talking about one home. At a time. And we're not going to fix all the homes in the world, but we're going to look at it from the perspective of starting with one home at a time. I want to first tell you a story. Uh, you recognize the man. You recognize his name. Uh, when this story took place, he was in his early 30s. He had a long robe that was rough cloth and the right color and all to indicate that he was an Augustinian monk. He taught at a university in Wittenberg, Germany. And on this date, October 30th, 1517, 
He was walking toward his room in the monastery alone. And that was unusual for Martin Luther. Uh, because usually he was surrounded by students. He was a popular professor. He, he taught theology at the university there. And students loved him. He was exciting. Uh, he challenged things. He made them think. Uh, one time, and he was a little bit of a showman sometimes, one time he took his doctor's cap off and, and threw it in the river to mock the infallibility of the Pope. Another time he picked up his Latin Bible and opened it to the apocryphal books in the middle and tore them out of the Bible. Told his students they didn't belong in the Bible. He was an exciting, popular teacher. But tonight, October 30th, he needed to be alone. Uh, he had been raised loyal to the Roman Catholic Church. He thought that was the way that things ought to be. But in his uh, monastery and his university position and his, his preaching time, he, he studied the Bible. He studied it a lot. And the more he read the Bible, the more he studied what was in there, the more disturbed he became with the status of things. The more upset he became about some of the church's practices and what was going on in his world. And in the last few years, it had gotten worse and worse for Luther. What had pushed him uh, further and further toward some kind of action was a man named Johann Tetzel. Tetzel had made Luther's life miserable. Uh, Luther had come to believe that there was something deeply wrong, deeply wrong, that needed to be fixed, needed to be changed. The church had drifted so far from what the Bible said, from the principles of kingdom living that we talked about the last few weeks, that something had to be done. Now, Tetzel worked directly for the Pope. He worked for the Pope who was wanting to build St. Peter's Basilica. And the Pope that wanted to build St. Peter's Basilica needed a lot of money. If you've been to St. Peter's, you know he needed a lot of money. And Tetzel was the main fundraiser for him. And the way Johann Tetzel raised money, and he came into Luther's parish and took money from Luther's parishioners. Oh, he didn't take it. They, they gave it to him willingly because what he told them was that he could sell them indulgences. Uh, basically, he was telling them that he was selling them official forgiveness for sins. If you donate enough, you can do what you want. Oh, the Bible says it's wrong, but it's really okay. It's an age-old message, by the way. But in Luther's mind, that was the tipping point. The church had to change. It had to be reformed. And he was the only one who seemed to be willing to do it. He decided he was the one who had to start it. So when he got back to his room in the monastery that night, on the little table before him, he had a piece of parchment with 95 points written on it. 95 points of reform that he thought were essential. Biblical reasons 
theses, if you will, 95 theses of what had gone horribly wrong in the church. And as he went to sleep that night, he no doubt struggled with whether he would have enough courage to do what he planned to do the next morning. You see, in 1517, lots of people knew something was wrong. But only Luther seemed to be brave enough to do something about it. And he had the courage. The next morning, October 31st, 1517, he walked to the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, with his 95 theses rolled up under his arm. He walked up to the door of the castle church, which was kind of a community bulletin board and where announcements were put. And he nailed his list of 95 theses to the door where all could see it. He started a huge reformation. He started a a change in the world, the religious world, that still echoes today. Now, Now remember Luther. We'll talk about him some more later. But let me ask you this. Have you... Have any of you noticed something horribly wrong in America? I was born in 1948. So I don't know too much about the 40s. I don't remember much of the 40s. But the 50s I remember. Let me tell you about the 50s. If you're my age or older, you just sit there and nod. And the rest of you try to keep your mouth closed and your jaw off your chest because it wasn't many years ago. But I'll tell you what it was like in the 50s. In the 50s, I walked to school every day. I'd stop and get my friends along the way at their houses, and their mother would wave goodbye to us from the front door. And she'd be there when we came back home at the end of the day. Oh, I know some moms worked, but, boy, it was really rare. They were just starting to build houses with two-car garages because not that many people had two cars. There weren't any daycares. Oh, there were a few, but not the big institutional kind that we have today. All of my friends... Had a mom and a dad. I really cannot remember knowing a child of divorce through elementary or junior high school. I knew some in high school, but not before that. In high school, about one girl a year got pregnant. At least that's what we assumed, because she'd just kind of go away, she'd disappear. She might come back the next year or might not. We watched cartoons on Saturday morning. About the only time we watched TV. The family turned it on at night for some shows. There weren't that many. There were only three channels. But there were a few shows that the family would watch. And in those shows, it was a lot about family. Functional family. Well, one was named Father Knows Best. 
Bonanza, Paul always had the right answer. Wasn't anything racy on TV. Uh, they couldn't, when they showed a married couple in their bedroom, they were never both in bed. Sometimes one was under the covers and the other one was still getting ready for bed talking to them, but they were never both in bed, a married couple. There was no electronic anything. They didn't have any electronic game. Our games, they, they, they had a ball or a bicycle. That was what was in our games. And we'd get on our bicycles and we could go anywhere we wanted. As long as we were back by supper time and we knew when supper time was, as long as we got back home by then, we were all right. People dressed differently back then. Uh, you didn't go to the store and see anybody in their pajamas. Only place I saw underwear was in Sears Roebuck catalog. You didn't see it on people, revealed in public. You went to church over a movie or a art activity downtown, a play or something. You dressed up. You dressed respectfully for the event. In Wichita, Kansas at least, and I know it's not the big metropolis, but in Wichita, Kansas at least, in elementary and junior high school, I didn't know about gays. I didn't know what transgender was. I didn't know about child pornography. I didn't know about gangs or gun-free zones or I'm not saying we ought to go back there. I'm not even saying all that was right. I'm just trying to tell you how different it was. A half a century ago. Five decades ago. Then came the 60s. Now, the 60s were an amazing decade to be a high schooler or a college kid. I'm glad I wasn't an adult in the 60s. I think I would have had a stroke. Because lots of things happened in the 60s. It was an amazing time. We had Woodstock and Vietnam War protests and, and hippies. And, uh, but basically out of the decade, there came a rejection of rules, adult rules. A rejection of restrictions. Rejection of anything that institutions told us or old people told us. Free love was the battle cry. And the basis of that was you need to forget all sexual rules. That's what's messed the world up, is all the sexual repression. And we need to get rid of that. If it feels good, do it, is what we learned in the 60s. And the 70s came. And here's an amazing newspaper front page. The headline is that Lyndon Johnson died, but the second is that the Supreme Court made abortion legal. Now, both of those, uh, that's the key to the 70s, second one especially. Johnson dying, what he had done in the 60s 
would have repercussions in the 70s and on to today. He passed, he pushed through a, a staggering amount of legislation, the great, the great society, the war on poverty. And he changed things so much that we're still trying to figure it out. Food stamps, aid for dependent children, Head Start, all of that was part of it. A lot of what he did designed to help people actually hurt. What it did was it made it uh, unnecessary and sometimes cost prohibitive to have a husband in the home. It's what his legislation did. Single mother households exploded. Because what had happened was a father's responsibility now would be handled by Uncle Sam. And then in 1973, the Supreme Court ruling that's mentioned there on the front page, uh, a ruling that's it's baffling, it's inexplicable legally. You can't find a legal reason for it. But morally, it was absolutely devastating. The Supreme Court ruled that human life in the womb wasn't human life. And that the mother had the right to kill it. Then the 80s came. And they're often called the decade of greed. But materialism maybe did go a little crazy then. But in the 80s we began to reap what we had been sowing. The chart on the left is divorce rates. They, they were pretty steady and pretty low for years. And then what happened in the 60s and the 70s started to bear fruit in the 80s. And the divorce rate peaked. It's slowed down a little bit since then. But look at that rise. Look at that jump. You see, when you sow free love, no responsibility... Dads are optional. Babies are an interference. Divorce doesn't hurt anything. You reap divorce. Uh, The feminist movement, which had also started back in the 60s and around then, by the 80s had convinced women that their role was to be whatever they wanted to be. It wouldn't hurt the kids if they left home. It wouldn't hurt the kids if they left home for 12 hours a day or it wouldn't hurt if they left home permanently. So be whatever you want to be. And we began to realize the great success of getting women into the workplace. The 90s came. Gays came out of the closet. Well, they'd always been homosexuals. We knew that kind of, but... I mean, you can read about Sodom and the Old Testament. They've always been around, but not out in the open. And sometimes they were persecuted. But mainly, society just ignored them. But suddenly, they wanted to be noticed. Suddenly, they wanted equality. They demanded protection from discrimination. They demanded acceptance as just a slightly different lifestyle. The first decade of the new millennium, 2000s came. The internet came into its own. Came into every home, every school, every bedroom, every pocket, every 
place there is. And it brought with it an amazing power to learn anything about everything or everything about anything. But it also brought with it the sewers of pornography into everyone's pocket, to everyone's room. This decade, it's only four years old. We don't know, I don't know what the final picture will be. But right now, what I put up is this is the decade when we are completely redefining marriage. Completely redefining what it is. The, the concrete that God poured, that, that foundation of one man, one woman, has been jackhammered out. Or it soon will be. Now, it's hard for me to comprehend that all that's happened. Just going back through there and looking at the decade, I was flabbergasted that all that's happened so quickly. We've changed so much. Well, how's all this change worked out for us? Yeah, you can look at statistics or you can look around you. Gallup recently asked people, do you think that the state of moral values in this country is getting better or worse? 82% said it's getting worse. 11% said better. I don't know where that 11% lives. They don't have a TV. I know that. They're not paying attention if they think it's getting better. I think most true polls would show 100%. Everybody recognizes it. We know it's getting worse. Yeah, you can look at statistics, you can take polls, or, or you can just look around you. Look at the crime rate. Look at the abuse rate of children and spouses. Look at the divorce rate. Look at the number of one-parent households. Look at the number of grandparents raising grandchildren. Look at anything around you. And you know that the stable home, the stable home that God designed as a foundation for society has been attacked. And it's crumbling. We've known that, but I think we've made a mistake. I think we've known that and we've tried to do something about it. But everything we've done, basically, we've sought the answer out there. What we've thought is, if we could just elect the right politicians. Remember when we tried that? We said, we're going to be the moral majority. We're, we're going to elect Christian kind of politicians, and they'll straighten all this out. Now, back in the 70s and 80s, we decided to try that. We, we knew it was going the wrong direction. And we said, we'll fix it through politics. Well, we thought, okay, if we can just pass the right laws, let, let's pass laws that make this kind of change and that kind of perversion. Let's make it illegal. And the Supreme Court says, forget your laws. So we think, well, if we could just get the right person, get one more right person on the Supreme Court, then that would fix all this. Or if we build enough private schools, maybe that'll fix it. 
Or if we hire the right youth minister just to take care of our kids, that'll fix it. Now, all those things are important. All those things ought to be done. But I want to ask you this morning, what's necessary? We, we know something's wrong. What's necessary? We have a Bible pattern. Psalm chapter 78, it's not the only one, but it's so clear, let me read it. Psalm 78, verse 4, middle of verse 4. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. His power, the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children, so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. The answer is not out there. The answer is one home at a time. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to give you some practical ways to restore your home. Now, I know some of you are sitting there saying, well, mine is just fine. My home doesn't need restoring. Okay, that's good. I'm happy for you. Well, come anyway. Here, here's the plan. You might find there's some things you could change, but if you're just fine still, then then you'll know the the practical advice. You'll be able to help your kids and your grandkids and your neighbors and, and folks that need to restore their home. I think you'll be surprised at how your fine home could stand a little restoration. Just like Luther had the courage... To stand up against everything around him. That's what he had to do. Somebody in this audience needs to take a stand. One home at a time. You see, the the 50 years that I've just talked about, that Johann Tetzel has been coming to our community. Oh, he's in a different guise, but he's got the same operation. I know the Bible says it's wrong, but it's okay. I, I can make it all right. Don't worry about what God said about the home. Don't worry about what he said about marriage and, and roles of men and women and parenting. And all. Don't worry about that. It'll work some other way. And he sold that to us for 50 years. It's all right. I'll give you permission. In fact, he's gone so far past that that now if you try to say, well, God's way is a pretty good way, you're attacked. Not just by the world, but your friends in here. If you really try to follow God's way, there'll be people in here that say, you're crazy. That's what Luther faced. Uh, Luther stood up and I'm not idolizing Luther today, especially his doctrine. He had a lot of things wrong. I am admiring his spirit. I am thinking he's an amazing man for what he did in the situation he was in, what he recognized, and what he was brave enough to do. Because, you see, 
It wasn't just nailing the thing up and everything got right. The church fought back. The hierarchy fought back against this monk who was being a heretic. In fact, they charged him with heresy. They arrested him. They tried him. He faced death. He went through all of that over a number of years. And finally, it came down to the last trial. And they had him before all the important people. And they said, with all these books piled on the table in front of him, they said, do you renounce everything you wrote in those books? Will you recant of everything that you've said against the Holy Church? We'll give you last one last chance to recant and you won't be punished. Luther said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. We need some wives. We need some husbands. We need some fathers. We need some mothers. To look at this world and say, my home will be different. We will, we will follow the Word of God. That's all we can do. Here's the five things we're going to talk about in the weeks ahead. First, you can nail these to your door if you're as brave as Luther. Number one, I will be responsible. I will be responsible. We've lost personal responsibility. It's always somebody else's fault. We need some spouses and some parents who will pray a prayer every day like Tom Deffenbaugh prayed this morning. The world needs me. The world needs us to do it right, to follow God's word. Number two, second, we'll restore the covenant. The covenant of marriage has been ignored. Divorce rate proves it. In and out of the church, we'll restore the covenant. One man, one woman for life. Third, we in our family at this home will restore the roles that God intended for man and woman. Fourth, we will parent with purpose. The reason we've been given these children is not to fit into the world and be acclaimed by the world. Fifth, we will battle the culture. It's a spiritual battle, but it's very practical day to day. We're focused mostly on materialism and sensuality that have completely permeated the Christian home. I hope the arrow is pointed at your home. This is the one I'd like to start on next week. Next week we'll talk about I will be responsible. Come back and we'll begin to explore restoring the home. The lesson is yours if you're here this morning and need to respond to the, the Lord's invitation. Luther was right about one thing. The Word of God is what we need to stand on. The Bible tells us clearly what Jesus did for us and what we need to do to claim that salvation that He offers us. If you need to do that this morning or have some other public need, come, let's stand and sing.